0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So, today we are continuing here in our series in uh, the book of Hebrews, as Aaron just read. They're here within the last nine uh, verses here in chapter 11. Now, last week, if you remember, we you know, we've been dealing with this issue of faith, and, and the author has kind of taken this on. And to kind of remind you a little bit, the author is, is, is we believe, writing to a group of people here um, in the first century that, that are Jews, but that, that have come to know Christ. And, and so he's been challenging them with many things. And we saw in the first few chapters of the book of Hebrews, he challenges them with the, getting them to, to, rem, to know and to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. The thing that they've been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And not only that, but he's reminded, he's reminded them that he is, he's greater than all of these things. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than, than, than you know, the angels. He's, he's greater than Abraham. All of those things. And then he kind of takes them through and he says, but your, our ancestors were disobedient. And look what happened when they were disobedient. They wandered in the wilderness. And, and so in on one hand, he's reminding them all the hardships and then he's saying, but Jesus has come. He's going to fulfill all of those things. He is going to be the perfect sacrifice now. There's no more need for those sacrifices. He's going to, he's going to be the great high priest, right? There's, there's not going to be the need for the temple anymore. And, and this type of situation where the high priest goes in before the Holy of Holies, before God, and makes the sacrifice. And so we move forward, and now he's talking about Faith. And So I've been I've been wrestling with this a little bit, like, because I, I want to stay biblically accurate to the text. I want to I want to really when we study it was the the women's um. Uh, event yesterday. There was about 50 women here and, and, and they uh, did some teaching and, and talked about Bible study and, and it was just, it was great. And, and one of the things that came through in that, because I just happened to be running sound and, and lights for them a little bit, was this idea that we want to make sure that we're understanding who's, who's the text written to? What is it saying about God? Who, what, what was the, the things that were happening in their culture to really understand what the author was writing? Yes, there's application for us, but, but what was the author truly saying? So I've been wrestling with that. He's talking about faith here. And So why is the author talking about faith? Has anybody even just wondered that as we're going through the book of Hebrews? Like, he's been telling them that Jesus is the Messiah, that that he is going to fulfill it, and the Old Testament's going to go away, there's going to be a New Testament. And then he spends this whole chapter talking about the history of of the Israelites, and he's going to talk about all of these people that have this great faith. Well, in chapters 3 and 4, he's been telling them they, they weren't believers. I mean, they weren't, they, weren't, you know, they weren't obedient. They did all sorts of things and, and they, they weren't faithful. And now he's raising them up and saying, oh no, the, these people had great faith, right? And so I've been resonant. So why is he camped out here? I mean, we've been spending four weeks on this issue of faith. And what I, what I kind of take away from this is that, so think about this now for a second. The, the writer is, is, we've been talking about this for a lot, is getting these, these Jewish Christians to let go of something that they've held on to for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and follow a man named Jesus who's been killed and resurrected and is not there anymore. And he's telling them that you have to be prepared to give your life away for that truth. And so he's he's really saying, and so you need to be prepared. I want to tell you what this is going to require. It's going to require faith. It's going to require a faith that maybe you've, you've never quite imagined what kind of faith it's going to require. And it's going to cost you something. If, if you listen to it all, what, what Aaron read, we're going to read those texts again, the author is not mincing words here. It is going to cost you your life, possibly. Because he knows... Now, think about what was happening in the first century. If you were a Jew and you decided to follow Jesus, you were probably alienated from your family. You may have been persecuted and stoned, and you may have been fed to the lions. It just depends on what area, what time it was in that first and second century. We, we know what, what happens to the apostles, right? James gets beheaded early on. The, the first apostle, early on, doesn't even really get to, to live out his life after Christ is resurrected and ascends, right? Not very long. James, one of the inner three. I don't think he was a member of the prosperity movement, right? In other words, that falls flat on its face. The idea here is, is that our hope is in Christ, not in earthly things. James Hope was in Christ, and, and he was gone just like that, just like that. And so the writer is trying to say, look, I'm asking you to trust in Christ. I'm asking you to, to remember and, and, and acknowledge that all the things we've been saying about he's the fulfillment of all these things, and if you can get there, if you will believe, I want to tell you that you're going to have to hold on to your faith because it is going to get hard. You may be beaten. You may be tortured you may be put to death but it is the truth so hold on to that and he begins to unpack this here in this text and that's why i think the author's writing this he knows what's ahead i mean like i think about like if you send your children um off to school their first kindergarten day right you, you want to prepare them as much as you can for what the, the scary life ahead right being alone mommy daddy won't be there right if you send your kids off to college, many of you go and, and you help them get set up and you make sure everything is good because you're preparing them for what's ahead. This is what the author's doing. He says, look, I'm, I'm telling you, you need to come to Christ, you need to give your life away to Him, and I want to prepare you for what lies ahead. Very good possibility that this may be in your future. And I think part of the challenge here in the Western world, in, in, our, in our American culture, in the, in the idea of the, the American dream, is that we think that, that following Jesus should be easy. I mean, like... Doesn't he love me? Doesn't he want blessings for me? I mean, the church is so corrupt with that type of thinking. It's a, but that is not at all what we see in scripture. That is not at all. Yes, there are times of blessing and prosperity and, and good things, but there's, there's many times that they give their life away for, for Christ. And there's great persecution. Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, right? He suffered. And so to think that we can come into this Christian life and, and say, oh, i have to suffer, and surely God doesn't want me to suffer. It's just not a biblical way of thinking. It's not a biblical way of thinking. And yet, I will tell you that even my own flesh wants that, not the suffering, the easy life, right? I, I want to say, no, I believe, so God bless me and, and keep me from those things, right? Keep me from harm, right? But that's not, that's not what Scripture teaches us to be prepared for, and, and so this idea is I've been wrestling with this, and I've been thinking about this thing called faith as we're continuing here another week in this. The, this type of faith that I think the author's trying to get across to them, and, and we're going to read it here in a second, is a sustaining faith. It's a, it's a faith that sustains them. Last week we looked at a faith that what? Changes us, right? That when gift, faith is a gift of God, to change us into the people of God, to, to give us to make us Christ, to make us more like Him. And we looked at last week and we said, faith what? Changes what we trust in. It changes what we choose. When we truly believe, when we truly profess Christ, and if we have truly been born again, it changes our actions. It changes what we choose in life. It clearly changes our future. Right? It changes those things. It changes what we fear. Right? Many of us, as I said last week, we, we fear all sorts of things. But when we have a faith in Christ, a biblical faith in Christ, it changes us. Now notice I said biblical faith, and so you're going to hear me use that term a lot this morning. This idea of biblical faith, the reason I say that is because we have all sorts of faith in the world. We have faith in all sorts of things, right? You have um, faith that certain things are going to happen, and we have faith in, in, well, I don't want to say we have faith in the government. We, have, we believe certain things. We, we, we have faith that, you know, it's going to rain today when the clouds are. We, have, we use that term all the time in all sorts of different ways. Biblical faith, and there are other people of of many different religious views and biblical, or not biblical, but that are world views that are people of faith, we would say, but it's not a biblical faith. And so I want to be real clear about separating these things and want to talk about biblical faith. What is biblical faith? Biblical faith is is having a belief and trust that God sent his son into the world to die for sinful people, of which every person on earth is sinful. And that he dies, lives a sinless life, is resurrected, and it says, if you will trust in me, if you will believe in me and surrender your life to me, you will have eternity with me forever. That's a biblical faith. That's the high arching of the biblical faith. And so what, what the author here says, I want to I get you guys to believe in Christ in that way, have a, a real biblical understanding of faith. And it's going to cost you something, and he's going to tell them what it potentially is going to cost. At the same time he's telling them what it's going to cost, he's encouraging them by these words. And, and I will tell you this, as we'll talk about this a little bit, this, this idea that I think sometimes persecution, and, and while I'm not saying, boy, I hope persecution comes to America, right? I, I'm hoping that, you know, we get persecuted for our Christian faith. I will tell you that one of, the, one of the byproducts of persecution is you really get an understanding on where your faith is at. Would you hear that? And that's when something pushes in on you, and you have to make a decision, and it's hard, and, it's, and there's no easy choice, your decision is either going to remind you that you are not a believer, or you are a believer. You have trust in Christ, or you don't. But see, the problem in America is that we don't have that. Most of us, no, there's no push on us. We can live, and we can say, well, I, I love Jesus, but I, I, I'm going I'm to take the, the down road down here. So nobody really needs to know that. I believe, but, but I can live the way I want because God does, surely doesn't want me to have to suffer any. That is not at all a biblical view. And you're going to see that here in the text. All right. So this idea of sustain, I want to think of this word for a second. What does it mean to sustain? This idea to support or to, to bear up, right? If I'm going to choose to use this word, I want you to understand what this word really, I'm trying to say about this word. It's to, to support, to maintain something, Right? Probably my best definition that I like the best is to endure without giving way or yielding, right? To endure, right? To, to put up with, to, to bear up underneath without giving way or yielding. It, it, I, I like in, in um, the... Um, Paul talks about the... Uh, the armor of God. And the one thing that Kyle spoke on it, Kyle Miller spoke on it a few months ago. This idea of the, the shoes that they were shrouded in, the shoes that, that they were gripped in the, the ground so that a, a, a soldier could fight and not be moved. It's that picture of this sustaining, right? This idea that I won't be moved. I won't, be, be, I won't yield because of, I'm rooted firmly. And this idea of sustaining faith is that idea that to, to endure without giving way or yielding. Okay, so it leads me to your, and under that example, let's, let's look at the big idea this morning. Biblical faith sustains us. Biblical faith is the thing that helps us to take root, to have a foundation, to be firmly planted in those truths, and it sustains us. And because what the author is telling them is, is that if you come to Christ and you believe, you're going to have to have this. Because it's going to get challenging, right? It's going to get challenging. All right, so let's dive in. We're going to look at five, um, five kind of observations of how biblical faith sustains them, and I believe it transcends an application into how it sustains us in our life. Chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephtheth, of David and Samuel and the prophets. I want to just stop. There's six words there that kind of start that. I think we just want to pause there for a second. What more shall I say, right? What, what more shall I say? What is the author trying to say here? Well, he's just been spending all of this time. If you've been here the last few weeks, we've been covering all that the author has been telling them. And the author finally is kind of acknowledging, I have been talking and writing and explaining this. What more can I say? I've already told you about the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. I've already told you the faith with Israel. We crossed through the Red Sea, right, by faith. We walked around Jericho. The people walked around Jericho, fell, the walls fell. What more can I say? (laughs) But like any good preacher, he keeps on going. Right? He has more to say because it's that important. That's that's what I want you to see here. I think what the author is saying, I've told you, but I need to keep telling you. Into the wee hours of the night, I'm going to continue to tell you because it's this important in the Christian life. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to do this, it's this important. And so, what is the first observation that we can see where biblical faith sustains them? Biblical faith sustains us even though we're imperfect. Even though we're imperfect. Now, uh, I think this is an important foundational piece um, for all of us And we think about this. He, he lists these names here, right? He lists Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Were any of those people perfect? No. Nobody there. I, I thought about using sinful, but, but I used imperfect because it's not just sin. We, we, are, we are sometimes just not we're just not doing what we should be doing. It's not sin, but it's not really obedience. And, and so we're just not living the life we should be. We can be a Christian. It's not sinful. But God would say, but I'd really rather you be doing it this way, but you're taking more of an easy road. And, and so it's this idea that none of them were perfect. But let's look at some of the people he just mentioned. David, King David. He's lifting him up for his faith. David had a man killed, took his wife. Wow, Right? David's being lifted up. says he's a, he's a man of faith. Look how God worked in David. Samson. He's held up here as a man of faith. Okay, I want you to go into Judges this, today, this evening. Read Judges. Because really, many of these people, he's coming out of the book of Judges. Right? All these, many of these people he talks about. First and second Samuel as well. You're going to see about King David. Samson. He, he was born. Um, God had favor on his parents and, and on Samson. He has the strength. He's going to be used by God. And what do we see happen in Samson's life? He gives in to all the fleshly appetites of the world. He's not supposed to drink, he drinks. He he's, he's, sleeps with prostitutes. He's deceived by a woman. He gives in, does horrible things. But then he's used. He still responds in biblical faith at times and is used by God. Gideon, we're going to read about him here in a minute, doesn't, you know. So what? what's the point of him using these people? What, what am I trying to say is, is that biblical faith sustains everything. Everyone, if we will just enter into it, if we—if it's a gift of God, it will sustain us even though we're imperfect. And I think the great news for you and I this morning is that you and I are imperfect. You and I don't deserve biblical faith, but God gives it to us anyway, even though we're sinful, even though we've lived a life of disobedience at times and rebellion, He still works in us. Isn't that amazing? Gracious beyond compare, right? I mean, I will just tell you, And I've shared this before. I mean, for those of you who know my my life past, I I should not be here if we're looking at standards, right? I I shouldn't be here. But God has worked in his grace and has allowed me and, and works through us. And I'm here as a pastor. And that would be true for anybody that's here. But I know my own sin, as Paul says. And I'm the worst of all sinners because I know my own sin. And I just want to encourage you today, no matter what, whatever your life has been like, whatever you've done, whatever sin you've committed, however disobedient you've been, I will tell you that biblical faith is available through Christ for you, and God will work through that. He will. He will. Don't think, well, I'm, I'm beyond, you know, use to the kingdom. No, you're not. You say, well, but I don't have that platform. No, you have a platform of your own personal walk. That's what's important. You don't need to be on stage. Your biblical faith should change. Like last week, it changes what we think, what we fear, all of those things. It sustains you. Maybe it's maybe it's that just God is going to use you to, to raise godly children, to, to to make sure that they're in church. To, you, you're just your biblical faith is trusting in that because it is it hard to reign, you know, raise children, right? It's a challenge, right? It's hard, especially in today's culture. With all the, the things that you're competing with, all the, the social media that you're competing with on a 24-hour basis and, and, and what the world's doing and what the neighbors are doing, and you have to make hard decisions, right? And this idea that no matter what, God will use you. Maybe it's your platform at work. Maybe it's your friendships. Maybe it's in your family. I don't know where it's at for you, but God can use you if you will just rest in biblical faith and he will sustain you there. All right. All right. So let's look at Gideon for a second. just want to kind of step into him just a little bit in this idea of biblical faith. This is not going to be on the screen. Um, this is something I added this morning I just wanted to touch on. Gideon was a, um, a man who has a father that um, worshipped Baal, and, and so obviously they're kind of in this pagan culture a little bit, and, and they're... <laughs> The, Israel has disobeyed God, and so he's allowed the Midianites to kind of um, subdue them, and many of them have fled into the mountains. And here he's, his father and him are there, and, and they're kind of hiding out. and, and, and he's actually um, uh, doing some, some, trading out some wheat and, and, and to kind of do some things. And, and I just want to pick it up. An angel comes to him. I don't have time to tell a little story. Read. It's uh, Judges chapter six. An angel comes to Gideon, and he says um, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, in verse 12, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Wow, that's pretty cool, right? Gideon's just a guy, just farmer, and he's a mighty man of valor, right? And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And now he's just going right back. Why, are we, why is it like this? Why are we dealing with this stuff, right? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? He's just really giving it to the angel. Like, well, how come we're hiding out? Now, what he's not acknowledged is that Israel's been disobedience, And this is why this has happened. Right? So notice that Gideon is heralded here as a man of great faith that God works through. But in this particular moment, I'm not seeing a lot of faith from Gideon. Right? I'm seeing a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback against the angel. And the Lord turned to him and said... Go in in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Okay. I think at that moment, you know, Gideon's like, man, I should not have opened my mouth. Right? Now he's going to send him to do this. Like, okay, if you think you have all this power, if you think you're so wonderful and you can fix this, you go right ahead and do it. Right? Did I not send you, God says? And it says, go in the might of your power and save Israel from this pain. Did I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So he's just saying here, I'm, I'm nobody. Who am I? I I'm, I'm, I'm of the smallest clan. I, I, I'm the smallest in my house. I'm the weakest in my house. But what, what God is kind of trying to, to point out to him is that it'll be in his strength that something's going to happen. God is going to get the glory for what happens here. But it is going to be through a biblical faith. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Right? So, and, and you can go on, you can see that Gideon even then doesn't always trust God and he asks for, for certain um, things to be able to confirm that it is God. And so there's this challenge that, that he is. And so my point is is that we're all questioning sometimes. We all have doubts at moments, right? We all have these moments, but God still uses us if we will just hold on to biblical faith, it will sustain us. All right. Second thing I want to share with you. Biblical faith sustains us when we face opposition. <clears throat> now, you, there's, we have opposition all sorts of things in our, in our world, uh, opposition to everything. I mean, we, are, we live in a, a world that's full of opposition. But specifically, I'm going to be talking to you today about how we have opposition to our biblical faith, to our Christian worldview, to our belief. Now, I'm going to ask you to be thinking about, do you have any opposition to it? Have you experienced any opposition to your biblical faith? My guess is some of you may have to really search hard for that one. And I'm going to challenge you to say, well, it's possible because you're not exhibiting any biblical faith anywhere. You're not laying down a line anywhere and saying, I'm going to stand here. I'm not going to be moved. See, we kind of move with the wind, right? We move with the culture. Because, because we don't want to you know we don't want we want to be happy we don't want to have to like lose anything or give up anything no this God surely wants me to be happy he wants me to have things he wants me to have a good life and nah, he doesn't want me to, have to suffer right so let's look at the pe- passage here Hebrews chapter eleven verse thirty three through thirty five he just talked about these men right and he says who through faith so now he's saying these men that I just talked about this is what they did through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. So, it, so what's the point here is that I think the, the author is trying to say, look, our ancestors faced all sorts of opposition, but God's, a biblical faith sustained them in light of all those things. And if you will be firmly rooted and planted in your biblical faith, God can work through you and do mighty things. Now, is that a promise? That everything, that if we stand firm, that everything's going to go well? No, that's not at all what he's saying here. He says, but I'm telling you that if you will stand firm, God can use you. He will sustain you even in this idea of opposition. Think about all the things that, that David had to come up against. God sustained him through many of those things against Saul, against other kingdoms, the Amalekites. They stopped the mouths of lions. Authors or theologians debate you know, where some of these, because it doesn't say, but we believe that many of these things are all tied to the people he's just mentioned, right? We see in Scripture where David actually wrestled with a lion and, and did this. And so maybe it's there. Quench the power of fire, right? We immediately probably think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they were in the fiery furnace and yet they didn't get burned up. And so as they believed, they had this faith, they overcame the opposition of Nebuchadnezzar. They became mighty in war. Clearly that could be Gideon, right? If you read the story, I encourage you to go home today and read the story in Judges. He overcame and, and God took his numbers way down so that God would get the glory and, and really be able to show Gideon who he was. Put foreign armies to flight. Once again, put Gideon and David. Women received back their... They're dead by resurrection. Could be a reference to Elijah and Elijah about how they brought young men back. They, they, they mothers were heartbroken that their sons had died and in two different circumstances in Scripture. They, they bring these young men back to life. Now here it uses the term resurrection. And, and we can, um, depending on what Bible you have, what translation you have, sometimes it says resurrection, sometimes it says resurrection maybe even say resuscitated. Sometimes it says uh, back to life. I, I want to be clear about something. I, first service, I used it as, uh, the word recitation, and a few people were a little bit confused about that. I, I just want you to understand that we want to be very clear in when we're talking about things like this. Resurrection in Scripture, for the most part, always refers to the resurrection to eternal life, the, the fact that we are given a glorified body. When Christ resurrected, he had a glorified body. Uh, Paul says in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3 that he longs for the resurrection of the dead, for his flesh to be resurrected, right? Here, when, when it talks about resurrection, it's, it's not being resurrected to eternal life. It's being just brought back to life, physical life. So, the first service I use the term resuscitated. Okay, that may not be what you think, maybe resuscitated, like, okay, you're almost dead and I was able to bring you back. No, these, these guys were dead. Right? He brought them back when when um, Jesus brings back Lazarus. He was dead for four days, right? So you can use the term resurrected there. You can say, you know, resuscitated, but it's not a biblical resurrection in the sense of to eternity. So I just want to be clear there. So let me let me ask you a question though, because obviously death is an opposition, right? So that's what it's saying there. It says. We have opposition. Death is an opposition, right? Our sinful nature is an opposition to us, and ultimately, God conquers that for us and sustains us through it. But what other oppositions do you face as a in your Christian worldview in your biblical faith? I mean, if you just examine your life for a minute, take some inventory, and say, "How am I? Where do I find opposition in my faith? What are the challenges?" Um, in my walk with Christ that I come up to on a regular basis or different challenges? And how how do I need biblical faith to sustain me in those things? Are you never having any opposition? You know there's great opposition around the world. People are being put to death for their faith. People are being put in prison for their faith. My concern is, is that many in the United States by God's grace we don't have that. But on the same hand, I'm wondering sometimes if it's not part of the reasons why we sometimes wonder if we really are saved or not. You hear a lot of people, Christians say, well, I don't know that I'm really saved. Well, because there's been no, perse- there's been no persecution. Your faith has not been tested in any major sort of way. And so we wonder, would I, would I stand? Would I, would I give my life away if it came to that? Now, I believe that there are places we can stand in, our, in America that many of us maybe aren't standing. I think about all the injustice in the world, and, and many of us don't want to get involved in it. I think about the whole debate about abortion, and I, I think about politicians. You know, we, we want to stand, and we want to have a biblical faith that sustains us, and, and many politicians will come out and say, yes, I'm, I'm pro-life, I, but you know, you always got to wonder, where's the motive there? Is it really that they're standing in a biblical faith? I hope that they are. But many of them notice that they kind of vacillate depending on when the election is. They'll give. They back up because they need those votes. And so then they'll take a different position. But a biblical worldview says, no, abortion is murder. It's killing. And I'm going to stand. And if I lose the election, I lose the election. I'm not going to concede anywhere. I'm not going to move. This whole idea of gay marriage and all the pressure around um, what's happening in our world today with gender and sexuality. And, and, and I'm not saying that we, we don't want to be antagonistic. We want to love those people that are struggling. We want to love people in sin. Because look, we are struggling with sin in the church. And we, we want to love those people, but we don't, want to, we don't want to move from a biblical position of faith to say that there's male and female. But yet notice that when we get in those conversations, we don't say anything. We may be talking to someone, and we just well, I just don't want to argue. I'm not, I don't want you to argue, but I want you to stand. I want you... The biblical faith will, will stand there, right? Because what I'm seeing here in the text is, is these, these people suffered. These people had to stand in opposition, and when they stood, God did things. God met them there, right? I think about companies that today are being... Um, pressured to do certain things right many of the the big fortune 50 companies are are being willing to pay for people to travel thousands of miles thousands of dollars to have abortions because they're pressured by our culture they're just willing to send them spend money to do all sorts of things there's all sorts of companies that are taking stands on social issues has nothing to do with their company but they're willing to take social issues on because they want customers they want to be well-received. They don't want to be boycotted. Is, now, corporately, I think there can be biblical faith. Now, I'm not saying those companies are biblical. They're, they're not. They're, they're just secular companies. They're institutions. and I, That's fine. They don't need to be. Obviously, not every company is going to be a biblical company. But it, it does make me think of, and, I, and I've not done a lot of research here, um, but Chick-fil-A, If you've read anything about Chick-fil-A over the last several years, Chick-fil-A has been persecuted in multiple states and multiple places, they've been boycotted. And for what? For having a biblical faith, a biblical worldview. Not because they won't hire people, they're hiring anybody that's a good worker. It doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your sexuality, they hire you. They're a great employer. They're willing to do that. But because our world is pushing back so much. And I believe that it's, it's a spiritual warfare type thing. They want to shut those type of things down, and yet Chick Fil A has held their ground. They don't—they're not even open on Sunday. And you know, if you've been to Miller Lane lately, they ain't in need of any more customers. I wish they'd have a few less so I get through the drive-through a little quicker, right? Because God is allowing them to prosper. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they got good chicken. Don't get me wrong. But God is allowed, that is God at work in our nation. It's an example. And I think about this for a second. Them and Hobby Lobby, maybe he's the only other one, right, is providing for them. And notice, think about the parallel here. What, is, what does Jesus say? Narrow is the road that leads to life and few will find it. Wide is the road that leads to death and many will go that way. Just in a microcosm, look at our, look at our nation and look at businesses. Narrow is the road that Chick-fil-A is on. And few will find that road. Few will behave that way. Few will stand in biblical faith. Many will not. Google will not. AT&T will not. Microsoft will not. Okay, that's their right. I'm not, I'm not. But I'm saying that's a picture of what really has happening in our own spiritual life. It's, it's, a, it's a grand picture, but it's an example for all of us as we look at the world that God's word is exactly what it says it is. It's, it's even playing out in our culture exactly the way it is in our own personal life. You know, I will tell you that, you know, they, cl- they close on Sunday, and I so admire that. Unless I'm on the way home from Florida, and we've had this great Time in Florida, my wife and I, and we're coming home, and, and I am not in a good mood, and I don't know why. Of course, you know the vacation's over; it's coming back to work, and all of that. And we've been driving, and I decide, you know, we're you know, you know, those pleasant discussions when you're trying to find a place to eat with you and your wife, um, and where should we go? And finally, we decide on Chick Fil A. I kind of said, "I want Chick Fil A. That's what I want." She said, "Well, Raleigh, it's like 20 minutes off the highway." I said, "I don't care. I want Chick Fil A." And so, sure enough, we spend, and we, you know. You get off the highway, and then it's a lot longer than you thought, and now you're in these little towns, and it's the next town over, and, and so we keep driving, and I'm getting angry, I'm hungry, but I'm waiting for my Chick-fil-A, and we pull around, and we get in this little complex, and there's Chick-fil-A, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Sunday, they're closed. <laughs> now I'm really angry, right? It's interesting, like, I'm thrilled that they've taken a biblical stance and closed on Sunday. But at that moment, my flesh was not happy, right? I think we went to Arby's, and it wasn't nearly as good. But, and I was humbled. I will say that because of my, my argumentative tone with my wife, and it really kind of humbled me. But, so this idea of opposition, and when we are faithful in our walk, God sustains us in opposition. All right, third biblical principle here, how God sustains us in biblical faith. Biblical faith sustains us in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering. So what the author's going to do now here is he's going to say, okay, there are times when faith, God works and He He provides, He helps us enforce justice, conquer kingdoms, and, and you know, stops the fire and all those things and gives us mighty in war. That's true. But now he's really going to get in a very clear picture of what it means to follow christ that suffering is going to happen it's going to be part of our christian walk but that biblical faith sustains us in the midst of that he's preparing these people he's being very straightforward with his readers here he's saying look it may require you to lose your life may it may do you know when we share with with christ with people if you're if you're somebody that shares jesus with people Do you, like, tell them all that bad stuff? (laughs) Like, do you know? Like, people will probably not want to be your friend. Like, you're probably going to have some family challenges, you know, because you're going to be the really, like, the fundamental one in the family that's the Jesus person, and no one's really going to, you know, want to warm up to you at Christmas, and, and, you know, they're going to feel convicted around you. And, oh, by the way, at work? Yeah, I wouldn't talk about that because you may not be in the in crowd, and you may not get that promotion, you know, but just, just, you know, but boy, love Jesus. Give your life away for him, would you? And oh, and you know, gosh, if, if, it, if it keeps going this way, and you, you have a, a child that decides to live this alternative lifestyle. Yes, you, you're going to need to love them incredibly, but you're not going to be able to condone the lifestyle. Are you ready for that? Because that's what it's going to ask for of you. Are you ready for that? Are you rooted in biblical faith that way? Biblical faith sustains us in the midst of suffering. Let's look at the verse. It says Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, second part of it. It says, "They were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life." Now that term there, uh, some were tortured. A better translation really meant that they were beaten to death. Okay? They were beaten to death. Yes, they didn't die instantly. It wasn't like you were beheaded. They were beaten and ultimately eventually died. All right. So what they're saying here is, is they refused to be released. They, they were in prison or they refused to give into whatever the, 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 the person wanted them to say, whether it was to deny their faith or whatever. We don't know what the author is saying here. So that they might rise again to a better life. They were refused to do that and realizing that they were gonna die, but they knew that they would rise to a better life. Some of your translations may say to be resurrected to a better life. Now there it's talking about being resurrected for eternity, right? saying, look, I can give my life away. I can be beaten, it's okay because I have my eternity with Christ. Now think about the way of thinking about that for a second. I, I spoke when we started about eternity. God is saying, look, if you will just be faithful I will give you eternity. So that 50 years, that 80 years that you have, will you give it to me? I'm going to give you eternity. I just need those 50, 60, 70 years of your obedience. I I need you to be willing to give your life away. Can you do that? Because if you give your life away, I'll give you life. And what do we say? No, yeah, no. Can I have both? (laughs) Where's plan B? Can I have all of the above? I don't want to lose my life. I don't want to have any. Challenge. I want to get everything I can out of this life. I mean, that's our that's our way of thinking. That's the American dream, right? That's a that's a false, that's a false image that that our country has put out. That is not a biblical. In fact, it is anti biblical. Now, where do we go in our head sometimes when we think about this this picture of that type of faith? And so since we're in the Old Testament, I'm going to take you in the Old Testament. I'm going to take you several places. We're going to spend some time here because suffering is such a big part of our Christian walk. And I believe something that's going to continue to be part of our life until God takes us home. So where do we go in the Old Testament? Well, you you guys are very familiar with the, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've probably heard it multiple times in Sunday school and pastor's messages and all sorts of things. I just want to read you a couple pieces of it and point out just a couple things. So these, these three young men uh, were, were, were basically asked to bow down before a statue of, of a king called Nebuchadnezzar. I won't get into all the details and, and what food they ate and all sorts of things. And they said, we're not doing it. Uh, we're not going to do it. And the, fire, the, the, the king says, well, I'm going to have a furnace here and we're going to stoke those coals and we're going to throw you in there if you won't do that. And so here's their answer. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom is... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand. He said, look, throw us in there. God can deliver us. It's no big deal. O king, but if not... Now, this is where we we kind of really struggle with this one, right? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have served up or set up. So what are they saying? Look... I believe, I know, I trust that God can save me from that fire. But if you decide to put me in there and God doesn't save me from that fire, I'm still not bowing. I'm still not kneeling because I have eternity with God. I don't need, this, this is temporary. Do what you want with me, but I will not move from my biblical foundation of faith in Christ. Now, it's not in Christ at this point, but it's looking forward to Him, right? I will not move. I will not do that. I just want to ask you a question. How many of us live that way? You say, yeah, but nobody's going to throw us into a fire furnace. Not here in this country. Are people beheaded? Have, been, have you seen on TV that people have been beheaded for their faith? Absolutely. Have people been thrown in prisons and beaten? Absolutely. Do any of you go and search for that type of material so you understand what's happening around the world? Probably not. Because you don't really want to see it. You just want to be insulated from it? I do too. Like, I don't, you know. Go search martyrs. The way of the martyrs. What's happening in the world? Read good mission magazines. I mean, just, it's happening. We we don't want to open our eyes to it. We don't want to see it, but it is happening. Because it's biblical. It is what God is asking us to do, is to live that way. And I'm just challenging you, and I'm challenging myself to say, why we don't have that, at least in this country at this particular point, are you standing for the small things that you can stand for? Are you standing for those places that you can say, no, I'm not moving from this. Yes, I know it's going to cost me a promotion. Yes, I know it's going to cost me maybe a family relationship or a friendship. Not that we should go and find it. We're not trying to be antagonistic. I'm not saying to add fuel to that fire. I'm saying, but we can't move. Hebrews chapter 11, 36-37 says, Others suffered mocking and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And they were killed with the sword. How many of you worry about getting stoned to death? Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine people standing around you, five, six feet away from you, picking up stones and throwing them at you to kill you until you are dead? And what the author is saying is that could happen to you. But hey, Jesus loves you put your faith in him. Don't worry about losing your life. That's what he's saying to the church there, to these these people that are having to leave their Old Testament ways because their family may turn on them. People were ultimately fed to the lions under Caesar. Who was persecuting Paul? There was Jews that were following him from place to place in modern day Turkey to try and kill him and in fact they tried to multiple times Solomon in 2 i don't think i need to paint an image for you on that one most historians believe that that was isaiah but under a guy named manasseh he was Solomon in 2 let's go into the new testament let's see how this plays out in the new testament I have a lot of time here, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 28. This is Paul now, right? Uh, the guy that was persecuting the Christians and, and now has been transformed uh, on the road to Damascus. He's a follower of Jesus, writes most of the New Testament. Um, he's persecuted. He goes on these missionary journeys. Um, him and... and uh, um, oh gosh, Barnabas, and they go up to modern-day Turkey. They go to these little towns. They're preaching the gospel uh, to to Gentile people, but there's also Jews living in there that have dispersed out of of Judah, and and they're living in these little places. He's going to synagogues, and they are the the worst. Sometimes they, they ridicule him the worst. And so at one point here in 2 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to the church at Corinth, He's just, he's, he's empathizing with their challenges, right? He, he knows that they're suffering for the, for the cause of Christ. They're suffering for their faith. And so this is what he tells them. He says, five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I think once is probably enough. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. Day and night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers and dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. I'll get to that in a minute. Dangers from Gentiles. There's no place. Nobody loves them, right? Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers at sea. Dangers from false brothers. There it is again. In toil and hardships, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He's putting that as suffering. Are you concerned about the health of the church in America? Do you worry about that? Do you pray about that? Do you pray for, for our church, the health of our church? Do you pray for the health of churches in our area? Do you even think about it? Is, is that anxiety? Is there, any, is there anything? Is there any suffering there? Is there any weight on you? You know, when I um, decided I was willing to become a uh, except the role of lead pastor, I didn't realize the difference between what I call second chair and first chair. Um, If if second chair, like if you're in a a business and and you're second chair, somebody ahead of you is making all the, you know, if anything goes down, man, their fault, right? They take the buck, right? All of a sudden, you become first chair. There's a different level of, "Mm," on you. And I think most of us need to kind of step into that role in our prayer life. Like, we, we ought to care about that deeply. We, we, it's, and because we're so consumed with ourselves. we're not thinking about what God is doing. We're not praying for other churches. We're not praying for ministries here locally that maybe we look at it and say, they're, they're going astray. They're moving away. You know, we talk about opposition, and you know, here he's talking about all these things that have happened to him. And, and I will just tell you that, that sometimes, uh, because we want to hold to that biblical foundation of faith, I'm just going to be very transparent here for a minute. There are churches in the area that that we we desire at times to partner with on certain things, but there are times when we have to say, we we can't partner with you on that issue. Why? Because there's theological things that we don't see eye to eye. We're not trying to be legalistic. We're trying to say, no, we think that's going to lead people. That's not going to be good. We love you. We think you love Jesus. We're praying for you. I'm sure we have issues to pray for us, but we can't partner there. And yet the pressure of the opposition is that people will then say, well, you are this way or you are that way. You're that type of church and and you're rude and you're, man, I'm sorry. I'm just saying that's what the scripture says. We can't move from that. I love you, but we can't move from that. The elders are so committed to try and stay in biblical accurate because the thing that we're at war with more than anything is drifting from scripture, drifting from obedience in our culture. And I would say drifting from obedience in our church. And so Acts chapter 5, verse 41 through 42, let's see how Luke puts it this way concerning suffering. It says, so here, uh, I believe it's um, Peter and, and um, they've been persecuted. They've been out preaching the gospel and, and some authorities have, have kind of brought them in and said, you can't do that. I don't want you preaching the gospel. Here's the opposition here again, right? And here you're going to see suffering come. And So they talk about it and they say, well, we got to let them go. We can't really do anything, but let's beat them a little bit first. And so they beat them. And then they say, well, that they'll turn them out and they put them out there, right? And here's their response. This is Luke. It says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer under dishonor for the name. And every day in the temples and from house to house, they did not cease to teach or t- to teaching and preaching that Christ was Jesus. How many times have you been suffering at the hands of someone else? And walked away and said, praise God that I suffered for the cause of Christ. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have not. Right? That is just so antithetical to how our thinking is. Right? But that's, that's the glorious thing. We didn't, shouldn't do it with pride. That's not what I'm saying. But, but we should stand whatever comes. So we see it in the Old Testament. We have talked about that. We see it here in the New Testament, how they're living it out. We see it in the world a little bit. What's the future hold for, for us? Well, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in America. But if we read the book of Revelation, and you know, there's different views on eschatology here in Revelation. What's the challenge going to be? You need to do this. If you don't do this, you die. That's what the book says, basically. Where are you going to stand? You know, regardless where you stand on literal number of the beast, whatever, the question is, are you going to take it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to lose your life? Are you going to be willing to suffer? This idea of what it looks like. Someone told me after first service, they said, you know, there's a good opportunity that Revelation seems to say that the, how many people are going to be saved at that time. And the reason they're going to be saved is because they're going to stand for biblical faith and they're going to lose their life, right? That's what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is John writing. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and people, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? Now, a lot of times say, oh yeah, there's going to be people from every tongue, time and nation there. Yeah, but if you go down to verse 13, and it says, then one of the elders that was around the throne addressed me to John, saying, who are these? Clothed in white robes and where they have come from. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Most scholars believe that those are the people that have died by standing for their faith in the great tribulation. In biblical faith. Are we ready for that? Maybe that won't come in our lifetime. Maybe it's not gonna be exactly like we think it's gonna be sometimes. But I'll tell you, it's here now in many ways. Are we standing? Do people know that you won't give on that particular issue? You, you you love them, you're not this is not antagonistic, this is just one of standing firm in what we believe. Because we could lose a friendship. There could be tension in our family, and not—we don't want to put it there unnecessarily. Don't, and that's not what I'm saying. We could fail to get that promotion. We could say, "Well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work under the table, and make you know thirty-five, forty thousand dollars because clearly God wants me to have this." And 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 I'm saying, "Well, is that biblical faith? I don't think so. Are you trusting? I don't think so. Yeah, but it's going to cost me if I live that way. Yeah, I know. But you have eternity." Number four, we get two more real quick. Biblical faith sustains us when we are rejected and alone. Biblical faith sustains us when we're rejected and alone. Notice the progression, kind of what he's saying. He says, look, if you live this way and you suffer and you stand for these things, you will be rejected and be alone. That's a good possibility, right? And so the author's just being clear. This is this is what you can expect. And what does he say here in verse 37 through 38? He says, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about it, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. If we follow Christ, we, there's going to be times and seasons in life where we may be alone. And I will just say that's so, why it's so important to be involved in a part of a biblical church. Because God is saying, look, it's going to be narrow and there's going to be people that you're going to suffer, you're going to face opposition, and I'm going to make a church and so you can come together and you can support each other and you can encourage one another. So be involved in it. Love one another. They, people need you to encourage them. So be there. Be active. Hold fa- fast to the Word of God. Point number five. Biblical faith sustains us through the promise of Christ. Maybe the most important and foundational thing of the five points. Is it truly a biblical faith sustains us? Is based in the promise of Christ. And this is where he concludes in verses 39 and 40. It says, all these things, though commended through faith. So he's talking to all these people that he's been talking about. And all these things, all these things they've done, they were commended for them through their faith did not receive what was promised. What was promised? The promise of the Messiah, the promise of deliverance. They did not receive it. it Christ hadn't come yet. They didn't see the gospel. They didn't see the, Jesus and the resurrection and, and the promise fulfilled. Since God had provided something better for us, so what is that better? It, all the author's trying to say is, like, we, we got to see it. We were here. We saw Jesus' life. We saw him get resurrected. We saw him get killed and resurrected. We saw it. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What he's saying is, is if, if, if the New Testament, if the New Covenant wouldn't have come through Christ, they could not be made perfect because they were waiting and looking forward to the Christ. Jesus still had to come. Their hope was in the Messiah. We are looking back at what Christ done and they were looking forward. And if Christ had not come and the New Testament would not have happened that way, then they could not have been made perfect. What does that mean? They couldn't have been brought into a righteous, eternal life with God and forgiven because it depended upon Christ. So biblical faith sustains us through the promise of Christ. What do I mean by that? Because no matter what happens, tomorrow in your life, No matter how bad it gets, no matter what opposition you face, no matter what family members you may be on the outs with because of your faith, our hope is is in Christ. That's what sustains us. Nothing else. That is the thing that, that we're just so rooted and planted in. And the question is, do we believe that? And it should change how we live. It just goes back to last week. So what's the next step? If that's true, what is the next step? Real simple. Let your faith in Christ sustain you. Let it be the thing that you meditate on. Let, let, when, when you're tempted to move, to, to vacillate, no, go back to Scripture, go back to your faith in Christ and say, no, He is who He says He is, and this is what He's asked me to do, and He's promised me eternity. He's promised me that He'll sustain me. He'll be there. He'll comfort me. Yes, I may suffer, but that's, that's a biblical perspective. Let your faith in Christ sustain you. I'll leave you two verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is writing to the church here. And, and, and once again, they have suffered. There's great suffering there. And, and what does he say? It says, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So he's just saying abundantly. Don't miss that word. We share in the sufferings of Christ, which we know what they were, right? Abundantly. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. We we share in the suffering, but we're inherit, we're heirs to the kingdom. We have great comfort. We have eternal life. Both of those are true. Paul is trying to comfort them. Yes, you will have suffering. But know that the gospel and what Christ has done brings suffering and brings eternity. Now... If you're even maybe a step farther than that in your walk a little bit, in your, your, your faith, your biblical faith, maybe you have the view of Paul. I love this. In Romans 8, chapter 18, it says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow, right? Paul is saying, look, I don't even, it doesn't even matter how much I suffer because in comparison to what, what God has for us, it's not even worth talking about. How many Christians have that view? Like, I'm not going to whine. Yeah, my life is hard. But man, we got eternity. God is faithful. Yep. I could be having, those Christians over there have it better than I do. I'm complaining. I want what they got. Right? Why can't I have that, Lord? Paul's saying, look, this is all all pointless. This is all minor stuff because we have eternity with Christ. He has saved us we want to worry about suffering, worry about the wrath of God, worry about the eternal wrath of God. That's suffering, eternal. Paul's saying, look, we've escaped that. We've been given, we're heirs to the kingdom. We don't have to worry about that. And so whether you want to look at it like we, if we suffer with Christ, we also can be comforted, or whether you want to look at it like Paul says that it's not even worth comparing, whatever it is, I would say, just let your faith in Christ sustain you at all. Because I will tell you that there's going to be suffering that's going to come in your life that is probably greater than what you understand it to be, ever be. And sometimes that is biblical suffering. In other words, it's, it's, you're having to draw the line. Sometimes it is physical suffering. It's things that happen in your life because of sin. And, you know, I think about some things that have happened here recently with, with the Anderson family and losing their loved ones and just the horrific acts of, of violence and, and evil. And where do you go? Christ the only place the promise of the resurrection so as you leave here today I would encourage you to there's three questions on the bottom of your sheet there I would encourage you just to to talk about those things today talk about with your spouse talk about with your children just think about those things meditate a little bit on those things push into those things and let your faith in Christ sustain you let's pray dear Heavenly Father I want to thank you for our time together today May you be glorified in all that we do. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that you've given us. I pray that, Lord, that we will hold on to it in such a way that we'll be rooted in it, that we will stand firm for you, that we will love our enemies, that we will love the people that think differently than us, that we will will be such a sweet aroma to them. But, Father, that we will not move from the biblical faith and the truth that you've given us in Scripture. And Father, may that be a light to those people. And when we suffer for the sake of Christ, for, may we see it as honor. Not a consequence of our, of our life with Christ, but an honor. May we encourage one another. Thank you for the church, Father. Thank you that you put people around us so that when we're called to, to step out, we have people that we know are there for us to pray for us, to to be there, to provide for our needs when maybe we can't provide for our own because we're being faithful. Father, we thank you for these testimonies here in Scripture, the truths of Scripture that have been recorded for us that we can learn from it. Help us to look at this reality of suffering and standing for you and not be clouded by our Western culture Let's have a real biblical worldview. Help us to do that, Father. And as we do that, we pray that it will bring you glory until you come and take us home. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.: Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info@theridgechurch.net. At have a blessed day.